Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 6th of April 2020 and this is episode 155. On today's podcast, I talked to Professor Jerry White, Professor of History at Birkbeck University of London, about his social history on London during the Great War. This has been published by Vintage. I spoke to Jerry from his office in London. Jerry, welcome to the podcast. Can you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Well, I've been writing about uh, London for, well, I suppose about 50 years now. At the turn of the uh, 21st century, I published a book on London in the 20th century. And in that, I spent a few pages, you know, looking at um, the First World War and the impact on London. I felt then that there was a much bigger story to tell when the anniversary came up, I thought, you know, that would be a good opportunity really to do a book to uh, coincide with the anniversary in 2014 and to tell the story in, in greater detail. In my view, you know, the First World War is one of the big things that happened to London. And in many ways, it had a very important impact on the growth of the city in the 20 years after. Can you describe London in 1914? I know that's a, that's a huge question to ask. Yeah, well, it's... I mean, it it was a city of just over 7 million people. And you've got to think about it still with parts of Middlesex anyway, still being in pretty much open country. So that the big suburban growth of London in the 1920s and 30s, you know, all those sort of terrace houses with tiled roofs and, you know, all looking rather the same, which stretch east, west, north and south weren't there. So there was still access to countryside was a bit, you know, um, easier then than it became in the in, by the Second World War, for instance. It's it's a city too of great inequalities. So it's got the richest people in the country and some of the poorest. So that the Victorian levels of poverty, which had been exposed by Charles Booth in social surveys at the end of the century, really hadn't improved. There had been very little improvement for working class people in the 10, 14 years or so after the death of Victoria. And what sort of industries did London have in 1914? Well, it's the greatest manufacturing centre in the country for finished commodities. So things like garments, all sorts of things for consumption, uh, you know, mineral waters, beers, canned food. London was where things like watches and clocks were still made. I mean, that was all really going over to German competition by 1914. But what of Britain's, you know, watchmaking and clock clock making uh, went on, it went on in London. The new electrical industries were London-based. So were many motor car makers. And the aeroplane industry was very much a London industry based in West London. London was also the centre, a very telling thing, this, for munitions manufacture. It was, that was where most of the country's munitions were manufactured at um, the Woolwich Arsenal, uh, the Royal Small Arms Factory out at Enfield, where the Lee Enfield rifle was made and so on. So it was a, it was a hugely important manufacturing city when war was declared in 1914. So when war was declared, how did Londoners react to the declaration of war um, during, obviously, the first months and on in the first year of the war? Well, it was met, you know, sadly, with enormous enthusiasm. 
enthusiasm. People cheered outside Downing Street and Buckingham Palace. I mean, as you know, you know, the war fever only really erupted three or four days before the declaration of war on uh, the 4th of August at 11 o'clock at night. But by the time the declaration was you know, pending after, particularly after the invasion of Belgium, then war fever was at a very high pitch. I'm just writing now a book about London and the Second World War. The contrast is dramatic. There are no cheering crowds on the September 3, 1939. But in August 1914, the war was received by Londoners with enormous enthusiasm. And lots of young London men, particularly men who worked in offices as clerks and in shops as shop assistants and so on, flocked to the colours. Um, it, it was an enormously patriotic city at that moment in time. So how did that sort of pan out during 1915 and into early 1916? Well, I think the enthusiasm in terms of recruitment didn't really, wasn't dented in London. London remained a major recruiting ground for the army. If you think of London's class makeup, it's the largest middle class and lower middle class concentration of people in the country. Uh, as we know, also lots of working men flocked to the colours too. But as the war went on, you know, skilled engineers were much more useful in the munitions industry than they became in the army. And so a lot of Londoners, and the Port of London, for instance, too, found themselves in occupations where the uh, the government was very keen to keep men working. But in terms of employment, like, you know, if you were a bank clerk, then your job could be easily taken by a woman. And that's what happens. I mean, in, you know, Whitehall, in the in government offices and in the city, in banking and merchant houses and so on, women transformed the appearance of London in the First World War. Whole areas of London, which had been a male domain, like Whitehall and the city, particularly around Threadneedle Street, had become feminine by 1916. You know, there's a massive influx of women into industry and into uh, clerical jobs in 1915 and 16, and, and London is transformed by that. And certainly one thing you, you raise in your book is, is spy fever. I've got a, an account by Jack Tucker, who joined the Kensingtons, which is my grandfather's unit, and he talks about having been, his hair being cut by a German barber in, um, I think it was up in Turnpike Lane or something like that, around um, Finsbury Park, and he believes yeah. that this guy was, was a spy because he asked him questions. Was that a big yeah. problem in London? Well, I mean, spies really weren't a big problem at all. But the spy scare, the fever of uh, rumours and so on um, that erupted in 1914-15 was um, extraordinary. I mean, you know, you, you can't, looking back on it, you know, you wondered how credulous people were that anybody, you know, you could literally get arrested for feeding a pigeon because people thought that, you know, pigeon fanciers were using pigeons to send messages to Germany about, you know, a secret knowledge of English forces and so on. Yeah, there was an enormous outcry that the Scotland Yard was chasing these mad sort of spy rumours, doing little else um, in the early months of the war. And now London starts to suffer the war directly by the um, introduction of Zeppelin and uh, Gotha plane raids. How did these raids unfold in London during 1915-16 and what was the impact on the uh, capital's population? Yeah, it's um, very interesting. I mean, the, the, um, the raids begin with Zeppelins in 1915 and the Zeppelin raids continue really until the sort of autumn of 1916 when uh, Royal Flying Corps got rather better at handling Zeppelins and two or three were shot down. I mean, most 
you know, sort of famous uh, memories of the war. I remember speaking to people in the 1970s about London, the First World War, and almost everybody remembered, you know, the shooting down of uh, two Zeppelins were seen from London and millions of people saw them. I mean, it was a most extraordinary sight. The bomb damage from Zeppelins was not severe, although, you know, it was clearly a nerve-wracking thing for Londoners. But it was really the bombing raids of from September 1917 through to March 1918, which really shook Londoners' nerves, I think. In the Harvest Moon raids of September 1917, something like 300,000 people were taking shelter in the tube. Now, even in the Second World War, at the peak of tube sheltering, only 177,000 you know, were underground. So you can just tell that in 1917, the Londoners' nerves were badly shaken by bombing at that point, as you said, by Gotha aeroplanes and by you know, the enormous giants, which could carry a thousand kilo bomb. A thousand kilo bomb was dropped on Warrington Crescent made avail in, I think it was March 1918. Then, you know, by then, bombing was a much more serious risk to Londoners, and they really felt it. A lot of people trekked out of town to try and shelter in the countryside and so on. It was a most nerve-wracking period. And, and that sort of impact of bombing, of course, sort of overshadowed, really, uh, the interwar period and what people thought bombing might become. Uh, with advanced technology in the Second World War. And with this sort of um, movement of population out, and obviously with the movement of population into London, um, yeah. what, what sort of impact did that have in terms of how it changed? I think you've already alluded to some of the, some, some of the changes it had in terms of the workforce and the, sort yeah. of the nature of people in London during the war. Any movement out, you know, to avoid the bombing really tended not to be permanent. I mean, I think it was there... You know, certainly there's a move out at the end of 1917. There's no official evacuation from London. Any movement out was voluntary for those people who couldn't stand, you know, whose nerves really couldn't stand uh, the bombing. But what does happen to London's population is that it increases. We can't tell by how much, but there's an absolute influx of labour to London to work in, particularly in munitions. In 1914, there are something like 14, something like 14,000 people, I think, working in Woolwich Arsenal. Well, by 1917, by the end of 1917, 75,000 people are working there. And in West London, completely new industrial areas form around munitions making in Park Royal, which is a newly created industrial area in the First World War. It didn't really exist. It was open space before. Similarly, in the Great West Road and so on. And there's a massive increase in things like aeroplane manufacture in London and motor manufacture. So there's a, a huge influx of labour to London. It creates a massive housing problem. Overcrowding shoots up. No houses are being built in London because there's no labour to spare for building houses anymore. Any building labour, you know, spent on building munitions factories and stuff like that. So we do know that London's population went up. You can see that some of that is permanent because by um, 1921, the population of Greater London is, is almost 8 million. But it's the 20s and 30s in particular, I think, that you then see this huge growth in the number of people 
coming to London from all over the country. And how does this movement of population into the capital affect sort of the social norms and habits of the populace? Um, and do, do people start living in a different way? Well, everybody, housing becomes an absolute premium. And what you find is that in West London, where this is partly due to the population moving in, and it's partly due to the fact that rich families can no longer get domestic servants because women don't want to work in domestic service, which is still very low paid. They want to work in munitions factories. So you get a movement in West London of subdivision of large houses uh, into flats. So you've got a whole sort of the social movement really, which impacts most permanently, I think, in terms of London's housing stock. It begins in the, in the First World War, you know, in terms of a mass movement away from large houses to flats. I mean, some of that have been going on before the First World War, but in the First World War, you know, large houses become really unlettable. There are no domestic servants to carry the coal up, you know, five flights of stairs and so on. And so they turn into flats. Central heating begin, begins to, uh, you know, catch on in quite a big way. And so you've got um, a major transformation there, I think, in, in the richer parts of London around Mayfair, Marlborough and so on. And is there a major impact in sort of gender relations in the way that women behave? Yeah, I mean, I've mentioned the sort of feminization of parts of London. The world opens up, really, for London women in the First World War. They are needed as never before in manufacturing, particularly in munitions and aeroplane production, but also in offices where they take the place of men and in shops. Uh, Sainsbury's, for instance, didn't have women shop assistants until the First World War. All of the shop assistants were men. Well, the men were no longer there. They'd gone off to join up. Uh, and so Sainsbury's began employing women from 1915. And so that there's a mass transformation, really, in terms of the workforce of London in 1914 to 1918, particularly after 1915. It doesn't all last because, of course, men came back from the services and often they came back to their jobs and women were displaced and all the munitions industries and so on but were closed almost overnight after November 1918. But there had been a massive opening out of expectations for women who, of course, were rewarded, uh, some of them, over the age of 30 and uh, married women under that age were rewarded with the vote in the Representation of People's Act, People Act 1918. So, yeah, there's a, there's a massive transformation, I think, in the prospects for women that opened out in 1914 to 18 in London. And how did London's statutory and governmental agencies respond to the war? There are, I mean, I suppose the major impact probably fell in many ways on the Metropolitan Police, who actually also begin to recruit women as women uh, police officers in the First World War. But they have massive tasks of rounding up German Londoners, German-born Londoners. Germans are the major uh, ethnic minority in London, apart from Russian Jews in the East End. There are about 30,000 German-born people living in Greater London in 1911. And many of those are rounded up and interned First of all, in camps like Alexandra Palace, uh, Olympia was a, was used as a sort of staging post early on for holding German Londoners. And then a lot of them were taken out to the Isle of Man, uh, where there was a massive internment camp uh, for, for Germans and Austrian aliens. So I think probably of all the government agencies, it was the Metropolitan Police who had 
most to do in the war. They also had, you know, air raid warnings. They gave air raid warnings when the approach of enemy aircraft was known from about 1917 onwards and, and so on. So that they've got quite extensive new tasks in the war. How, did, how was London changed by the war? Well, I think that in many ways, the war marked very significant changes for London. First of all, the sorts of Victorian poverty that I spoke about, you know, that's still existing in 1914, were really wiped out by full employment in the First World War. So, and some industries, like the garment industry in the East End, which had been known for, you know, more or less starvation wages, were paying good wages at the end of the war and were providing work throughout the year, which they'd not done ever in London's past. It had always been a seasonal trade. So people are better off in London in the First World War than they've ever been in history before. I mean, I think you can say that, you know, in general, prosperity was spread around certainly the working class. In fact, the middle class were probably a bit poorer off uh, because of the war for a whole variety of reasons. But in terms of working class living standards, they'd never been better. And after the war, that remained largely the case. London suffered less in the Great Depression of the early 1930s than any other part of the country. And partly that was due to the manufacturing districts of London that grew up in the First World War maintaining their significance in London in the interwar period. So that factories which had been given over to munitions making, well, they closed down in 1918. But the buildings were still there. They were sold off by uh, the Ministry of Works in the 20s and became the basis of all sorts of industries, particularly electrical engineering in Park Royal, the Great West Road, and so on. And that was able to attract then further businesses like Hoover, Firestone Tires, you know, in the 1920s and 30s, because the labour force was there and the industrial buildings were there. London became a city of huge growth in the interwar period, and a lot of that growth was seeded by what happened in London in 1914 to 18. It was, um, in, in many ways, the First World War was a major boost for London's economy and a major boost for London's place in the nation. So very, diff very different, I think, from the Second World War, for instance. Now, as a historian of London, where does the experience of the capital during the Great War fit in its 2,000 years of, of existence? Well, I think partly, you know, the most significant thing, I think, in many ways, in terms of the experience of living in the city, if you were a working-class Londoner, as most Londoners were, this was a time of immense prosperity for you. You know, you, you had more money to spend than ever before. Sadly, you had fewer things to spend it on because there wasn't much movement in the housing market. You know, food was in fairly, there were, there were shortages of food. Food rationing uh, came in in uh, early 1918. But you had more money in your pocket, really, than ever before in history. And there's a rise, definite rise in living standards in London, the First World War, that had never been matched before. I think that in terms of the experience of the war, for most Londoners, was the thing that impacted mostly on Londoners' lives. And finally, Jerry, where can people read the book and find out more about your research? Well, you, um, I have a website, so you can just Google me and 
um, that, that'll give you some detail. There, are, I, I'm currently teaching at Birkbeck, so again, you can find a list of my uh, publications on the Birkbeck website, and all the books, including Zeppelin Nights, London, the First World War, are available on Amazon. They're all out in paperback, and um, I very much hope that people enjoy reading them. Jerry, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>